Awaken podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Welcome to Awaken and our Sunday gathering. We are so glad that you're here with us. And as we begin our time, um, first of all, I would just like to welcome you to this time, to this gathering. And really, um, as we start off um, after this welcome, I'll give a call to worship and then we'll head into our musical worship. Um, Just first want to say if you're new with us, we're so glad that you're here, that you've found your way um, either to our podcast or audio um, videocast. And we want to extend a special welcome to you. Um, And if you could, if you're interested, go to our website. There's an I'm new button. If you click on that, um, we'll get in contact with you just to hear more about your story and how we can give you um, a more extensive welcome to Awaken. So as we begin, let me um, start with a call to worship. And this is from Psalms for Praying by Nan Merrill. She basically has done paraphrases of the Psalms and this is from Psalm 119. So come with me and turn your hearts to worship. Your truth is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. When we meditate upon your light, our hearts open with compassion. This is how the veil is lifted, how the soul is filled with truth and light. Then we will not judge others and we will radiate love and healing to the world. For as we develop the capacity to bless others, We lighten the fears in the world. Uphold us according to your promise that we may love. Let not fear and illusion find a home in us. Even should we go astray and wander far from you, you will ever love us. We have only to return to you and acknowledge our our regret and forgive us and you forgive us refreshing our souls. Oh, friends, let us sing praises before such a gift, before such all-enfolding love, wisdom, and power. Amen.
blessing over our sweet little children. So please join me in this prayer. Yeah. 
Hey everybody, welcome back to Awaken. My name is Micah, if we haven't met. I'm glad you're here because, well, for lots of different reasons, but um, connected to why, you know, what I do, I'm glad you're here because I'm excited about what we're teaching. Uh, We're starting a new series called Lost in Translation, which is a perennial favorite uh, of our community and of mine. It's sort of like a take the bull by the horns, you know, take a cue from Tom Petty, don't back down kind of a series. And I love this series. You might be asking, what, what bull are we taking by the horns and why aren't we backing down, Micah? To which I would say the Bible. Um, <laughs> the Bible, let's be honest. Um, if you take the Bible at its word, At times, it can be a little confusing, a little bizarre, a little um, ancient, shall we say. It can feel a little patriarchal or even misogynistic or barbaric or tribal. To which I would say to you, that's it only feels that way because it is. Um, (laughs) And if you don't think I'm telling the truth, like if you're new to Awaken and you've never been to this series before, you've never been with us in this series, and you're like, I'm not sure Micah is uh, like you know, on point here, or he's not off his rocker, I would say just stick with me for the next 35 minutes, because the story we're going to start with this, uh, this series is a real humdinger, and if you don't think that, this, that some of those things that I said are true by the time we're done, I'll need to check your pulse. Um, because even if, even, even so, uh, you, you might think with this introduction that I'm, I'm sort of down on the Bible, but I'm not, actually. Um, Even though the Bible can be tricky and even discouraging at times to interpret or to read, in the same breath, it's beautiful, it's gritty, it's honest, it's raw, it's real. Um, And for these reasons, I love the Bible. That's why I do this series. I do this series because for many of you, the Bible has been used in ways that it was never intended to be used. It was read and offered to you in ways it was never intended to be read and offered. And because of that, my experience has been that many of you have sort of checked out on the Bible. You've maybe um, just not very interested in it anymore or deemed it obsolete or inapplicable or not applicable to your day-to-day life. And... um, you know, as a pastor, I hope to change that. I hope to be a part of uh, a movement in your life where maybe for the first time or uh, again in a new way, you come to love and appreciate the Bible. Um, I was sitting in a coffee shop one time with uh, a person who used to attend Awaken, and they told me that they thought that this series was the most unpastoral series that I preached in, in the year. Because I didn't mention Jesus very much, and we were in the Old Testament a lot, and this person for them that was very important and, and they said this is it's a very unpastoral sermon series that I do I didn't say this then but I'd say it now I wholeheartedly reject that and I completely disagree in fact it's my pastoral sensibility whatever pastoral sensibilities I have motivate me to do this series so today we're going to kick it off with a bang and an absolutely bizarre and if we're honest, very disturbing story from the book of Judges. Uh, There's a scholar named Athalia Brenner. Uh, She wrote a book called A Feminist Companion to Judges, and she writes, well, she's actually quoting another scholar whose name I only have the last name of, but either way, uh, this person says, this story is the most horrible story in the Hebrew Bible, as it depicts, and she goes on again, quote, It depicts the rejection, gang rape, murder, and dismemberment of a young woman whose body is subsequently used as writing. End quote. 
like to send a message. Um, so, Surgeon General's warning. If by chance you are watching this and there are children nearby, I would just warn you that what we're going to read is quite graphic. It has very adult content in it. And if your call, if you want to have those conversations with your kids, great, saddle up. If you don't, um, fair warning. And then I would also say, and if I'm being perfectly honest, if by chance you have been a victim of sexual trauma, there's a very good chance that some of the things that you'll hear in this passage and sermon may trigger some of that trauma. And um, you may or may not want to turn this off. Uh, so I just want, I, I want to make sure that you're in control of that and weren't surprised and felt like it wasn't your choice. Um, so having said that, uh, Judges chapter 19, we'll start in verse 1, and I'm going to read most of Judges 19 because it's quite narrative and you got to get the whole thing to get the story. So here we go. In those days, Israel had no king. Now a Levite who lived in a remote area of the hill country of Ephraim took a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah, but she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem, and after she had been there four months, her husband went to, to persuade her to return. He had with him his servant and two donkeys, and she took, to, she took him into her parents' home, and when her father saw him, he gladly welcomed him. His father-in-law, the woman's father, prevailed on him to stay, so he remained with him for three days eating and drinking and sleeping there. He goes on, he's going to leave the fourth day, he's convinced to stay. He's going to leave the fifth day, he's convinced to stay. He's going to leave the sixth day, and, and he's offered to stay again, and finally he's like, we got to get out of here. Verse 10, but unwilling to stay another night, the man left and went toward Jebus, that is Jerusalem, with his two saddled donkeys and his concubine. When they were near Jebus and the day was almost gone, the servant said to his master, come, let's stop at the city of, Jeb of the Jebusites and spend the night. And his master replied, no. We won't go into any city whose people are not Israelites. We will go on to Gibeah. He added, come, let's try to reach Gibeah or Ramah and spend the night in one of those places. And so they went on and the sun set as they neared Gibeah in Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin. There they stopped to spend the night. They went and sat in the city square, but no one took them in for the night. That evening, an old man from the hill country of Ephraim was living in Gibeah, came in from his work in the fields. And when he looked and saw the traveler in the city square, he, the old man asked, where are you going and where did you come from? He answered, We are on our way from Bethlehem and Judah to a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim where I live. I have been to Bethlehem and Judah and now I am going to the house of the Lord. No one has taken me in for the night. Skip to verse 20. You are welcome at my house, he said. Let me supply whatever you need, only don't spend the night in the square. So he took him into his house and fed his donkeys. And after they had washed his feet, they had something to eat and drink. While they were enjoying themselves, some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house. Pounding on the door, they shouted to the old man who owned the house, Bring out the man who came to your house so we can have sex with him. The owner of the house went outside and said to them, No, my friends, don't be so vile. This man is my guest. Don't do this outrageous thing. Look, here is a virgin, my virgin daughter and his concubine. I will bring them out to you now and you can use them and do, what, do that to them whatever you wish. But as far as this man, do not do such an outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And they raped her and abused her throughout the night. And at dawn, they let her go. At daybreak, the woman went back to the house where her master was staying and fell down at the door and lay there until daylight. When her master got up in the morning and opened the door of the house and stepped out to continue on his way, there lay his concubine fallen in the doorway of the house with her hands on the threshold. 
He said to her, get up, let's go. But there was no answer. Then the man put her on his donkey and set out for home. When he reached home, he took a knife and cut up his concubine limb by limb into 12 parts and sent them into all the areas of Israel. Everyone who saw it said to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something, so speak up. Pray with me. God, this morning we uh, desperately need your Holy Spirit to be present with us, among us, speaking, leading, guiding, offering something, anything of encouragement, of uh, challenge for us to understand and uh, make sense of what we just read in Scripture. God, I pray maybe more than I usually do, or more fervently than I usually do, that you would um, be with the preacher. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you and, and, and edifying good for the church. I pray in Christ's name and by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Uh, that's hard to read, if I'm perfectly honest. I didn't expect that. Um, I guess I really didn't know what to expect having never read that passage out loud for the church. Um, but the Bible is bizarre at times. It is disturbing at times. It is alarming and um, quite bar barbaric at times. And so what I want to do this morning is try to offer some uh, guidance on how do we read that. So first, let me just recap. Chapter 19 goes with chapter 20 and 21. And instead of reading three full chapters of the Bible, I'll just fill you in on what happens next. Uh, all of the leaders of Israel gather together. They hear about this story. They gather together to decide what to do. The Levite, the man with the concubine, retells the story, and um, they are incensed by this. Uh, no, such a thing has, has not happened since the Exodus, since Egypt. And so Israel sends word to the Benjamites, one tribe of Israel, to uh, give up these evildoers in Gibeah because they will be punished. For whatever reason, the Benjamites decide not to do that. They don't give them up. And so the 11 tribes of Israel assume attack on Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, and three times, the first two times they're unsuccessful, they lose all kinds of men. The third time they finally, because of a decoy and ambush move, they overtake the Benjamites and, the, and, and uh, they kill essentially all the Benjamites except for 600 men who escape and hide in the wilderness for four months. Um, at this point, the 11 tribes have a bit of a conscience issue, and they realize what they've done. Uh, Israel is 12 tribes, and they have nearly wiped out an entire tribe of Israel. So what was 12 is now almost 11. So they try to figure out how do we get some, how do, how do we not decimate this entire tribe, but allow it to continue into the future? So they realize that some men from Jabesh Gilead, another little tribe town down the way, had not come to fight with them. And so they attack this tribe, this village. They kill all the men and, and women except for 400 virgins. And they give these 400 virgins to the, uh, the Benjamites who are living in this cave, who are hiding out in the wilderness. So if you've done the math, we're short 200. Um, and so they hatch another plan where they tell the Benjamites to go to Shiloh, which is another town in Israel, and at this grand festival where there's dancing and drinking, to essentially hide in the vineyards, and when the women come out and do their dancing and festival 
celebration, to go and essentially seize 200 virgins, 200 uh, women, girls for themselves, so that the fathers of Shiloh can say with integrity that they did not give their daughters to the men of Benjamin, because they have made an oath earlier in chapter 20 that they would never do this. So this is how they get out of that. And the story ends with, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did as he pleased. I was on a Boundary Waters trip last week, a couple weeks ago, and we did a little reading time. Somebody brought a book, The Slaughterhouse-Five, actually, by Kurt Vonnegut. I didn't read the whole thing, but there's this line that he keeps using uh, throughout the story. And the line is, and so it goes. So there's a moment where the tension builds, and the author, the narrator, says, and so it goes. And it just kind of happens over and over again in these sort of key moments. And this phrase, and there was no king in Israel, is repeated five times from chapter 17 to chapter 21. And it's a bit of a trope. And that's how the chapter, the book of Judges, ends. And there was no king in Israel, and every man did as he pleased. So to be clear, we have one raped and murder concubine and 600 women taken, assumably against their will, in war, which is also called rape. So I want to offer today, I want to try to offer the con- some context for the book of Judges because this story makes no sense out of context in the book. Uh, then I want to dig a little deeper into a couple of narrative, um, well, textual bits that I find fascinating. And then I want to try to move to, as we close, some takeaways. So first, let's talk about the context of the book of, the, book of Judges. Judges, if you remember, comes after Joshua. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Joshua judges Ruth, 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, and so on. So Deuteronomy ends with Moses. He dies, and Joshua takes over. Joshua leads the people into the land. They conquer the Canaanites. They're to drive out the Canaanites, but of course they don't. And the Canaanites are living among them in the land. He instructs them at the end of the book of Joshua, before the book of Judges, to be faithful to the covenant that God has made with Israel, to live into this agreement, to be the people God has intended for them to be, to be a city on a hill, a blessing, a a nation that would be an emblem, a, a, a beacon, an outpost, a light for the rest of the world to know what it's like to live in relationship with Yahweh. They, of course, don't do that. And the book of Judges is the story of Israel's tragic and total failure to live into God's covenant. Before Israel has kings, they have these people called judges. Now, it's not, it's not helpful for us to think about Judge Judy in this moment, but rather like a tribal chieftain. Okay? And these judges um, enter this story in the book of Judges. There are six of them. And... Um, The book tells the story of how Israel becomes morally corrupt, how they basically become the Canaanites, whom they were supposed to displace in the land. So chapter one's the narrator sort of telling us all this. This is the this is what's happening. They've they've moved into the land, they didn't drive out the Canaanites, they've basically become subject to the corruption that the Canaanites brought. Pagan worship and child sacrifice, which of course Yahweh would never ask for. We know this because of the story of Abraham and Isaac from Genesis. So chapter two is the literary structure of the book. It's this cycle that happens over and over and over again. Israel sins and they become oppressed by the Canaanites. They uh, cry out in repentance. They're delivered by a judge and there's a season of peace and then the thing starts all over again. Israel sins. They are oppressed by the Canaanites. They cry out. They're saved by a judge. They Season of peace. And this happens again and again and again. And so, the bulk of the book, chapters 3 to 16, are the story of these judges. Othniel, Ehud, Deborah, we've talked about a couple of those. Actually, I did Ehud, the left-handed kingslayer, a few years back in 
lost in translation. And then we have three longer stories. Gideon, you've probably heard of Gideon. He puts out the fleece. He's a bit of a coward who eventually trusts God to save them from the Midianites. Uh, And he does so with 300 men who hold nothing but clay torches and pots, which is quite a story. Uh, But then he decides to kill some Israelites that didn't help him. He decides to make an idol out of the gold that they gained from the battle. Then he dies and the Israelites worship the golden, golden idol. So that's the cycle happening again and again. Jephthah, He's another judge, a bit of a thug. The, the, the Israelites call on him from the hills. He comes down. He's a great warrior, a battle, a battle guy, but he's totally unfamiliar with the God of Israel. To the, fact, to the degree that he's promised to offer his own child to Yahweh if God will bring victory in this battle. Of course, Yahweh would never do that. And finally, the last judge is Samson, right? The guy with the hair. Starts out great, but Samson eventually, we learn, has no regard for the God of Israel. He's promiscuous, he's vicious, he's violent, he's arrogant. And by the end of chapter 16, we see through the examples of the leaders and the judges of Israel that you can't even tell the Israelites and the Canaanites apart. So that's the book of Judges. And then we have chapter 17 and 18, which is one of the, the, the penultimate story. And then chapter 19, which is the ultimate sort of story. This is the context for the book of Judges. And if you imagine a spiral, like if you've ever seen something go down the drain in a toilet, when you get to the bottom and it disappears into the abyss or the sewer, that's chapters 19 and 20 and 21. It is the bottom of the barrel. It is the absolute base of Israel's existence in this period of time. They can go no lower, is what the author is trying to say. So this is... In some ways, you can't put that story into context because it's so disturbing. But from a narrative perspective, you can kind of see the levels of falling that Israel is going through to the point where they get all the way down to chapter 19 where this happens. So let's dig a little deeper. A couple of interesting narrative things. This is lost in translation, friends. I want to try to help you read the Bible well. So the first is that the book of Judges is part of a larger story that the narrator is participating in. It wasn't written historically like, oh, this just happened and he wrote it down. It was written far later, far after the kings of Israel. So the narrator has a perspective. He has a point that he's trying to make. And two places are noted in this story. First, you have where the concubine was from, which is the city of Bethlehem. Second, he's on his way home and he stops at the city of Gibeah. Now, if you don't know this, hospitality is huge in the ancient world. When I went to Israel, I ate more than I've ever eaten in my life. If you've been uh, traveled internationally, maybe you've been privileged enough to experience the hospitality of other countries. And hospitality is paramount. In fact, Jesus says this is the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. They were inhospitable. They treated the stranger so poorly. Notice in Bethlehem at the beginning of the story. The author says like five different times how, how, how generous and how hospitable this father who lives in Bethlehem is. Like to the point where you're like, we get it. Okay, he's going to stay another night. He's going to feed him again. Blah, blah, blah. Why is, this so, why is he in so intent on telling us this? And then when you get to Gibeah, the only thing that's said is they went in and sat in the city square and no one took them in for the night. Which a good Bible reader should be asking, what do we know about Bethlehem and Gibeah? Well, the birthplace of David and the birthplace of Saul. The author, through the narrative, knowing what he knows, writing back into history, is trying to tell you something about what he thinks the kings of Israel are like, how successful they were, 
what hope there might be found in any of them and in David, the glory of, of, of Israel's kingship. He was born in Bethlehem, the city of David. And Saul, the, one of the worst kings of Israel's history, was born in Gibeah. So when you find something, you might be saying, Micah, interesting, in- okay, fine, why? Why'd you tell us this? When you find something weird in scripture, like it's obscure and the author seems really intent on making sure that you know about it and it's not really of consequence to you or me, that's a great point to stop. Put down your backpack and get out your shovel and start digging. And you just do a little digging about these two places, okay, Gibeah and Bethlehem, and sure enough, you begin to unpack a whole nother story happening in this book. The second part of digging a little deeper is about translations and why they matter. The story puts androcentrism on full display. It is the breeding grounds for what we would call now toxic masculinity and much of the damage that's been done in the name of patriarchy and male dominance. No other way to say it. Most translators will say that the concubine was unfaithful. She left him to go back to her parents' house. Two words become very important as we seek to understand this woman who never gets a name in the story. Pilgesh and Zana. Let's take them in turn. Pilgesh, it's a Hebrew word. It means concubine. But it's also translated, often, secondary wife. Very different. Two different classes of citizens. Concubines, sex slaves, basically. And a concub, or excuse me, and a secondary wife, which one could have. Multiple wives in this time. It's possible that this woman was the concubine of the Levite, but it is equally possible that she is a secondary wife, worthy of a dowry, a bride price that would have been paid to her family, worthy of respect in some way, in a household. The second word begins to make it very interesting, zana, in the Hebrew, which means to play the whore or the harlot. This is what gets translated unfaithful. But question, why would a prostitute or a concubine go running to her father Like, this is not something that you're going to say, Dad, I'm home. I turned a couple tricks past the hummus, right? It's not something you're proud of and you're going to go home for when you get in trouble. It just, it's a little off. Clue. When the Hebrew Bible gets translated into Greek, this happens in like 3 BCE, the word gets translated a little differently. And the, the Greek Septuagint, as it's called, reads differently because it's, it's based on a different consonantal spelling of the verb. And the word is changed a little bit. It's zana, and in the Septuagint, it gets translated from zanach. Now, that might not sound like a big deal, but the difference is huge. Zanach means it's depicting the woman's emotional attitude. So the verse reads in the, in the Septuagint, but his concubine became angry with him, and she went away from him to her father's house. So let's put this together. When we read a story and it says, the concubine was unfaithful, played the whore, played the harlot to her master, and these terrible things happened to her, we might be tempted to think something. Like, she shouldn't have worn that. Now, I'm not saying any of you ever thought that or would think that, or that's not what I'm saying I'm thinking. But if we were to bring women up here or if a woman were to preach this sermon, I'm guessing that they would corroborate this line of thinking. That this, is, this, this happens in the world, where women get judged unwarranted or, or, or well, what's the word I'm looking for? They, they're, they're, they're shamed for something when they shouldn't be. But what if we read, a Levite's secondary wife became angry with him for any number of reasons. Potentially the dowry wasn't paid. Potentially 
her husband was harsh and abusive and unsafe, and so she fled to her father's house for protection. The woman with no name in the story becomes a very different person potentially in our minds, does she not? Why is this important? The reason I share this with you is to highlight the importance of all the voices when we read scripture. I'm all for men's Bible studies and women's Bible studies. Great, they're awesome. But what you miss is a multiplicity of voices, different perspectives when we read the text together. One of the things I love about working with Jenna is that she decided over a couple years ago, right up there in my office, is a whole library of books because most of the commentaries and people who help us interpret the Bible are white and male. So that's an addition to our library to bring in other voices. Hispanic, Asian, African, queer, female. I would have never read this version or this angle on the text if I didn't specifically look for female scholarship on this passage. I figured that's probably a good idea for me because it might not come naturally to me, the male, white, hetero guy, to read it in, in this way. So what I want to, I, I want to like really hone in on this. It is so important when we read the text to, to allow for, to bring in other voices and other perspectives because they shape how we read the stories. And something that I would have never come up with because why would, why would I? Now is like, oh, that is a very interesting and plausible reading of the story. And I'm grateful for it. So when you dig a little, that's fun for me. This is why I love the Bible. I think it's fascinating to dig a little bit deeper, and I hope that you find it fascinating as well. As we close, let me offer a couple of takeaways for this passage. For us in 2021, I want to offer two uh, observations about this story, one that's a bit general and one that's a little more specific. The first, the general. This story in, in, in Judges chapter 19 it could be summed up by this Fleetwood Mac song, You Can Go Your Own Way. You remember that one? I won't sing it. You're welcome. The whole book of Judges, it's like a car crash. Like you just can't stop watching it. Like you want to turn away. You're like, oh my gosh, I can't stop. Right? Each judge, with each judge, the sin of the people becomes worse and worse and worse. And, and the judges themselves become less in tune with the character and the heart of God. It's the pinnacle of, debac of debacle. It's awful. It's the disturbing story, this one, Genesis, Judges 19, the disturbing story about sexual violence and abuse and toxic masculinity and tr the tragic and disturbing depths that humans can go to when we go against the invitation of God. The Bible makes clear again and again and again that the result of humans choosing to go their own way to make themselves God or judge is a total disaster and always brings violence and the disintegration of human life as God intended it. I don't even have to be a pastor to convince you of that. Like, just historically speaking, the whole book is a setup for the reader, remember where we are, to recognize the grace of God in sending a king. The author's vote is for David, David's line, which begins in the story of Ruth, and the need that we have for someone or something outside of ourselves, outside of the nation of Israel, if you're in this time, to govern, to help draw you up into what God has invited you to live into and be, to be in relationship with this generous and kind and sacrificial and selfless God. 
Of course, we know how that story ends. But did this story actually happen? I don't know. There's a lot of inconsistencies in chapter 21 and 20 um, in terms of accuracy in history, but the point for the writer is clear. When you choose life without God as the center, it moves quickly to these results. It's a warning for the people of Israel, and it's a warning for you and me. When we choose to go our own way, when I choose to go my own way, when I think I know best, when my desires and my natural inclinations for myself are the best way forward, inevitably, we know where that story goes. And so this story, Judges 19, 20, and 21, is a giant blinking red light saying, stop, don't go down this path. More specifically, and last, I'll say it this way. An inch during peaceful times becomes a mile during conflict and war. What do I mean by that? Something small during peaceful times, during normal times, when things aren't under duress, gets exacerbated and exaggerated in conflict and duress and war. Um, Suzanne Schultz argues in her commentary on this passage that whatever is out of sync, whatever is off kilter, whatever is less than God intended during peaceful times in a culture and, and in a society becomes exacerbated and multiplied during conflict and war. If you look at this story as a unit from chapter 19 to 21, you see the misogyny and patriarchy and androcentric domination that leads to the rape of one woman in chapter 19 during peaceful times and then leads to the rape of 600 women during war and conflict. She writes this, it, this passage, and I'm going to read this slowly and I'll probably read it twice. This passage emphasizes the need to interrogate structures of social or societal domination and not limit sexual violence to an individualized problem, as if it were unrelated to society in general. The book of Judges emerges neither as history nor literature, but as an ideological construction practiced and lived even today. Let me read that again. This passage emphasizes the need to interrogate structures of societal domination and not limit sexual violence to an individualized problem, as if it were unrelated to society in general. This book, Judges, emerges not as history or literature, but as an ideological construction practiced and lived even today. Here's my closing question for us. What is normalized in our culture and society that may be rooted in something less than what God intended for us, that doesn't honor fully the image of God in every human? Right? Like, what, what, do, we, what do we not call into question? What is n- normal or everyday happenings in our culture, in our society, that may be rooted in something less than what God intended, something that's a little off kilter, something that's a little uh, where there's power differential and there's dominate one, one person who's on top, one person who's being oppressed. Is there anything in our culture that societally we kind of just leave unchecked? that doesn't honor the image of God in every human being. And what's the logical conclusion of that belief in times of conflict or duress or exaggeration? 
Is there any attitude at your workplace that you, you allow to go unchecked, that's a little off, that maybe doesn't honor the image of God in every human? Maybe they're a woman or a differently abled person or a person of color or a person of a different sexual orientation or gender identity. Is there anything that we allow to go unchecked that's a little off, that doesn't honor the image of God in every human being? And what happens when there's conflict and war and, and duress? This author, and I don't disagree with her, argues that that gets exaggerated. And we go from the rape of one woman to the rape of 600 women, as told in this story. So my question for us as people of God is if there is anything in our lives that we can see with clarity that maybe is not as God intended for the image of God in every human, might we be the ones found working to change that, to speak out for those folks whom that affects, for fear of what might happen if we don't? Because we're responsible for our brother. Am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes, you are, and so am I. We are made for one another and and, and made to be in relationship with each other. And so when we choose ourselves at the expense of our neighbor, whoever they may be and however we may think they're different than us, we fall into this trap that, that is the essence of the book of Judges. So to the people of God this morning, this is a bit of a wake-up. This is a bit of a call, maybe from the prophet, saying, don't go down that road. So I'm going to give us a few moments of silence. A a few moments of sobriety, hopefully. To allow the Holy Spirit to speak and move. And maybe offer... Maybe turn on the lights. For any way in which we live in our family structures, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, where we allow attitudes, beliefs to exist that are, at the end of the day, less than what God intended for us. Less than what God intended because God, God's image is born in every human, regardless of their difference from you or I. And maybe, maybe you hear an invitation a way to move forward differently in thought and in deed. So might we hear the warning from the book of Judges this morning. Pray with me. God, as we take a moment in silence, Holy Spirit, I just desperately trust and need you to be who you always are. So maybe this is a declaration of faith that you will be that for us right now. So for my friends listening, hearing this, I pray that you would draw near and turn on the lights. If there are ways that we stand by with our mouths closed or hands in our pockets, not bringing to bear the resources and power and influence that we have to challenge structures and beliefs and systems in our cultures, in our society, in our workplace, in our families that are less than what you intended for us. May we find the courage, even now, to stand up and to speak out against those things, to be activists of love, of grace, of compassion, of welcome, of hospitality in the world. 
So Holy Spirit, do your work now, I pray. to believe.
On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. He said, this is my blood shed for you. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. So to the church gathered at the table, it's important to be reminded that this is the table of the Lord, not of the church. It's made ready for those who love God, those who want to love God more. So come you who have much faith or you who have little faith, you who have been here a lot, um, often, or maybe not for a long time or ever before, you who have tried to follow and you who have failed. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come not because I invite you, but because the Christ, the resurrected one, invites you to come and be fed, to be known at the table. So as you take the bread, I invite you to hear these words. The body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. As you take the cup, I'd invite you to hear these words. The blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. We, one of the values that we have on our wall over here is authenticity. And I'd be lying if I didn't tell you that I don't really know what to say to you right now. <laughs> After reading that and preaching that, uh, uh, man, it feels weird to just say, well, let's go to communion and some announcements and a benediction. Like it, it doesn't honor the weight or the depth of that. So if you feel it, I feel it. Um, so there's an Awaken Weekly that comes out. All the announcements you need are in there. There's some things coming up. I'd invite you to, to read them. Uh, Camp Create. Um, Mandy runs every summer for our kids. The first one's coming up June 28th. Uh, if you like pickleball, some people are playing pickleball on the 27th of June. That's a fun game. Uh, so you can, you can join them. And uh, I think that's all. So uh, let me offer this blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, amen. If you didn't know, by the way, if you're keeping, if you're watching this, we're meeting in the park these days, so join us next time, 11 o'clock, Highland Park Pavilion, rain, or no, not rain or shine, weather permitting. That is all. See you next week. Grace and peace. www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community or on Twitter Awaken Community See you next time